Well, it's my privilege to uh, preach again this morning, and it's a great joy to have Mr. and Mrs. Phillips with us today. <laughs> Trust you had fun, guys, and welcome back. It's great to have you. Um, it's my privilege to, to continue this series on sexuality, and for those of you that have been visiting, we've been looking over the last month in an introductory way about how we can think about and handle our sexu sexuality as sexual beings in an oversexed culture and how we can live as Christians in a godly way that honors God with our bodies and how we view our, our, our lives as sexual beings. And so we've tried to look at different aspects of that. And this morning, what I would like to try and do for a short while is just think about what it means to be a single person and how we can navigate that. Um, I've, I've obviously been doing lots of reading and finding it lots of it uh, informative, helpful, encouraging, challenging. But this is a, a, a journey for all of us, isn't it? And all of us, whatever period of our lives we are in now, we've had periods of singleness or waiting uh, that we've had to learn to navigate through. And so, whatever the season is that you're in right now, I, I trust this is going to be helpful for you um, as I share some thoughts. And what I'd like to do is, um, I'm not here to give you rules about how to live your life. I'm, I'm here to point you to Jesus, and I hope that um, this advice that I'm giving this morning will be seen as that. I'm a dad. I have two adult sons. I've had many wonderful conversations with my boys about their lives, their dreams, their own sexual frustration as young men growing up and how to handle that. And so I would like to try and share something of my own journey with you and also the conversations I've had with my sons. And in addition to that, I've been rereading an amazing book. Um, there's a guy called Tim Keller that you might have heard of who planted a church in New York many years ago now. He's an older guy now. But when he started and planted his church in Manhattan, he found to his surprise that 80% of his congregation were single. And so he decided to actually talk more about marriage because when he was speaking to single people, he found that they actually were desperate for handles in their lives of how to navigate this extraordinary time in their lives when the culture was encouraging them in one direction and the Bible was encouraging them in another direction and there's this amazing tension that they were living in. And so he wrote this amazing book and I want to encourage you, I think it is one of the best books I've ever um, read on marriage and this great amount of wisdom for single people in it as well. And it's called The Meaning of Marriage and uh, I encourage you to get that so and read it for yourself so I'm going to share some thoughts from that and obviously from my own um, journey as a dad and so how can we best navigate periods of singleness in our lives perhaps there's some people that have chosen to remain single uh, other people are anticipating marriage and are in a sense of waiting for that to happen uh, there are unwanted times of singleness in our lives um, due to the death of a spouse or extreme illness. Um, my mom died of cancer um, uh, when she was 70. And for my dad, it was a particularly difficult time because there were four years where their relationship was not what it always had been. 
because she was undergoing chemotherapy. She was really, really ill, and they couldn't have a normal kind of relationship that they had enjoyed as a married couple for many, many years. There are moments in our lives, whether we're married or single, that we have to come to terms with singleness in our lives. It can be divorce, disease, can be death, can be all sorts of things. And so it's best that we kind of think about it a little so when these moments happen in our lives, we are prepared and we can kind of navigate well through those periods. All right? So that's really my um, motivation for speaking this morning. And the first piece of advice I would like to give is this. First of all, recognize that there are seasons in your life that are not for seeking marriage, that are not for seeking relationship. Um, what do I mean? Well, there are lots of times in our lives where there are other things that are more important that need to be thought about or be our focus. Um, if you are so desperate to have someone in your life, I want to suggest to you that marriage and relationship is probably a bit of an idol in your life. And I'm trying to, I hope I'm going to be able to speak kindly this morning because that really is my motivation to, to, that you would know the grace of God. Um, uh, for those of you that you know me and have been part of this church for a while, you know that I love God's grace. I know that you know that I love God's kindness. And I found this, that rules, rules and regulations never really have helped me in my life. I've, I found that what really has helped me is the love for Jesus from the inside. That's really helped me. That's helped me to motivate myself in ways that I found difficult before. I knew Jesus. And that's really what I want to impart this morning. I don't want you to hear these things as rules. I want to hear you to hear these things of something of God's kindness that you can, uh, you can um, what's the word, um, appropriate for your own life that will bring life to you. So the first thing, there, there, are, there are times in our lives when we are in periods of transition, like starting a new job, like leaving university or going to a new school or dealing with the death of a parent or some other major life event. At those times, it's not necessarily good to be thinking about a relationship or, or trying to find someone for yourself when you are in this incredible period of change. And there's a healing that needs to be um, found by the power of the Spirit. You need to regroup in some ways. You, you need to find friendships that are meaningful, uh, perhaps before you think about dating and marriage and other kind of things. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, is it's good to ask yourself, honestly, what season am I in? And to relax and to enjoy that season and not always be fighting for what is not yet, what is still lying ahead. Does that make sense? Yeah, first thing I want to say Realize not every season in your life is one where you need to be seeking deeper relationship with one particular person. Secondly, I want to say this, and I, I do want to under, unpack this a little bit more. Um, uh, so this is my main point, really. Okay, so this, this is the main, the main point I want, want to say. Uh, understand that singleness really is a gift. <laughs> and now you might say to me, oh, that's very easy for you, and you married. And for, for me, this is um, interesting because... Um, I've been married for 28 years, so I've just crossed over in, yeah, 29 years. I've just crossed over, <laughs> just crossed over from, for the first time in my life, I've been married longer than I have been a single person, which is quite interesting, isn't it? It's, I never thought, I mean, it's like I'm at that age now, but um, 
I, I want you to see this morning that the Bible really does speak about singleness as a gift. And I'm going to unpack three things. Um, most most um, Bible commentators, Christian writers are uh, speaking about the historic decline of marriage. It's in a radical decline all over the world. And that's certainly attributable to many of the things that we've been looking at in our culture over the last month. Um, we live in a self-centered culture, pleasure-driven culture, expense-driven culture, commitment-free culture. And that certainly reflects the spirit of our age. There's the pornification of our culture in every way. Uh, the delay of people getting married for the first time, so people are getting married much later. There's unchecked materialism in our culture. There's the carnage of broken families, absolute carnage of, the, of broken families, women raising kids on their own because the guy hasn't got the guts to stick around and he wants the pleasure of a sexual relationship and as soon as the child comes, he's off. There's carnage in our culture resulting from that kind of attitude. And so in response to that, the church is trying to um, promote a biblical uh, understanding of marriage and to promote both in the church and society, uh, lift up marriage again as something as a foundation. And so there can be this pressure in churches for young people in their 20s to get it together as quickly as they can um, and to get married early and for the, not just for the sake of of marriage numbers, but to kind of keep themselves out of porn or bad relationships or help them to be responsible. Um, and young men are encouraged to um, find the help that they, they desperately need in marrying a woman. It's if, if they can um, give up all night gaming, that is, young guys. And all, all of these things are good. All of these things are, need, need to be done. But what I'm talking about this morning is the in-between time. The waiting is the hardest part. Who's saying that? Um, what was her name? Can't remember. Anyway, I'll think of it just now. The waiting really is the hardest part, isn't it? The in-between. It's like, yeah, you know what's coming. You're anticipating what's coming. But the in-between part, that really, really is the, in is the hardest part. And how can we thrive in those times of waiting? That's what I would like to think about with you this morning. How can we thrive? Not just get through it. Not just kind of oh, grit our teeth and get through, but really, really thrive in the waiting times. All right? So my own story is that I only got married when I was nearly 29. So guys, I do know, you know, something of um, my frustration is, is like sometimes people treat young people as like the most unusual beings that have ever walked the earth. That It's not possible for adults to understand what it's like to be a young person. I find that incredibly frustrating because why? Because every old person was a young person once. Hello? Yes? We've all been through puberty. We all know what it is to live with sexual frustration. And it might, might change a little bit in terms of our culture, but we all know what it's like. And so, you know, we treat sometimes young people as like this extraordinary kind of life form that is just different from everything else. And I don't think it is, really. I think we need, we need to be wise and realize that something of our own journey can be helpful to people that are younger. And so I know what it's like to wait. I know what it's like to have a bad relationship that didn't do me good in my early 20s. And it took me years. Guys... Can I just encourage you, young guys, it's better that you're not involved with the wrong person. Save yourself from the wrong person. It took me five, six years to recover from a relationship in my early 20s. 
It was devastating. Yeah, and we kind of rush into these things because we, we, we find this pressure, you know, to, to be something and to be fulfilled. And, and then we end up in the wrong relationship. And it's just not good for us. And it takes years to recover. Be patient. So, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at one chapter in particular, 1 Corinthians 7. I've got a couple of things I'd like you to see out of this portion. And the first is this, is that Paul refers in 1 Corinthians 7, he identifies celibacy, and that you might not like to hear this, celibacy as a gift. <laughs> so, should we really think about celibacy as a gift? Is that different from being single? Uh, what about when you're this, this, this uh, anticipation of marriage, and is it that we are in to endure um, singleness as a kind of trial? Remember, we preached, I preached out of uh, Philippians uh, many years ago now. Philippians chapter 1. Count, consider it all joy, my brothers, <laughs> when you fall into trials of various kinds. Are, are we to consider singleness as a trial that we need to endure? Or is it more like Romans 8.28? God is working all things together for my good, and so I'll just like hang in there while I'm single, because in the end it's going to do me good, because God works all things together for good, so let me just get through it. Or, are we really to see singleness as a gift? And I think the Bible says it is a gift, and I hope you will see that this morning. So, I want you to see, first of all, that singleness is a Bible thing. All right? And why do I say that? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see in verse 1, Paul takes issue with a statement that the Corinthians are writing to him about. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul is writing back to the church. They have already asked him some stuff. There are problems in the church, and his, his response is 1 Corinthians. And he's writing back and answering their questions. And one of the things that someone has said in the Corinthian church, which was quite a super spiritual church, it had lots of gifts, but there was sexual immorality in the church. One of the things that these people had written to him and said, in verse 1 it says, we have found it is good for a man not to have any relationship with a woman, any sexual relations with a woman. And Paul is writing in response to that, and he's challenging an attitude in that church, was an, and it was the attitude of ascetism. In the first century, there were people that were ascetists. And what that meant is they thought that if you fasted a lot and you prayed a lot and you, and you actually didn't have sexual relationship, you were somehow more holy and a better Christian than those that were doing that stuff. So uh, you needed to fast a lot and you needed to pray a lot and you needed to abstain from, from physical pleasure and that somehow makes you more holy and pleasing to God. And so Paul is challenging that right on. And he's saying in verse 2, he, uh, uh, just to connect this in for, for those, you remember in, 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 uh, when we were studying Colossians, we talked about Gnosticism, which was also part of the first couple of centuries. People who thought they had superior knowledge, and asceticism and Gnosticism kind of went together. Because if you think you're more spiritual than, uh, than other people by your behavior, then you think actually my fasting and my praying and all the things that I do is making a big difference to how God sees me. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. It's by grace. It's by God's kindness. It's good you pray. Absolutely, it's good you fast. But don't put your trust in that. Put your trust in the grace of God that has saved you. And actually, in 1 Timothy 4, he challenges this kind of 
thing that people say in the most powerful way. He says, the Spirit clearly says in 1 chapter 4, verse 1, uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, it says this, the Spirit clearly says that in the last times there will be someone who abandon their faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So Paul is incredibly strong in his language, and he says, how do you know that the teaching is from the devil? Well, such teaching comes through, through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What do they do? They forbid people to marry, one, and they order them to abstain from certain foods, two. So he says, this is how you can be sure that, you know, if people tell you you can't eat certain stuff, because it's going to make you more holy, or that you can't marry because it's going to make you more holy, then actually that's not God's plan for you. That's not God's plan for you. And he says, God created everything to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God has created is good, as nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And that's Paul's encouragement. He's very, very direct. And he points out in Colossians again, he says, actually, what we need to put our trust in is the grace of God, the kindness of God in our lives. He says in Colossians 2.16, which we also studied, Therefore, do not anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink or regard to any religious festival or the Sabbath day. Don't let people judge you on that. These are shadow, says Paul, of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul's very plain. I mean, it's, it's very simple. And now he's, he's actually, when we talk about uh, 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about marriage and he's talking about the gift of celibacy, he actually says that if you are under sexual temptation, that's a good reason to get married. Paul says exactly the opposite. He says if you are desire, if you've got this kind of like, you know, in Corinthians it also says it's better for a man to marry than to burn with passion. Man, if you know that you're burning and you can't handle it anymore, get married. Paul says, very good reason to get married. Yes? And um, this is his challenge on these people who were trying to say in the church that people needed to be aesthetic. They needed to ascetic. They needed to refrain from these things. He says in verse 2 of chapter 7, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman with her own husband. It's good, guys, to make love if you're married. Come on. That's what he's saying. He's saying enjoy it. It's good for you to make love. And then he says uh, in, in um, uh, verse 3, he says, Husbands, fulfill your marital duty to your wife. Get on with it. Put some time aside. Make sure you're making love regularly. That's what he's saying. And he's saying to the wife, Likewise, wife, do the same for your husband. Yes? And he says, the wife does not have authority of her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but he yields it to his wife. So do not deprive each other, except perhaps for mutual consent for a time. <laughs> I love Paul. He's so straight. 
four times so that you might have some times of prayer. And then he says, but after you finish praying, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of the, your lack of self-control. Paul is exact, saying exactly the opposite to what the ascetics are saying. They're saying abstain in marriage from sexual relationship good it makes you more holy. Paul is saying, you, no, exactly the opposite. Enjoy sexual relationship in marriage. Abstain from sexual relationship outside of marriage because it's not good for you. Very plain, quite clear. So sex in marriage is a holy thing. Not celibacy in marriage is a holy thing, but sex in marriage is a holy thing. And he encourages us at the same time to, when we are not married, to, to, to withhold and to save for what God has for marriage. And so at the same time, Unless the pendulum swings so far to the idea as that marriage is the only fulfilling expression for Christians. Because I think there are too many Christians that think that. Paul does not think that. He says this. He argues at the same time the great joy and purpose that is found in singleness when you are living as a celibate person. He does both. And he says this, uh, he presents himself as a, the, the, the prime example of that in verse 7. He says, I wish that all men were as I am, myself. However, so he's saying, I wish all people were single like me. That's what he's really saying. But then he says, however, each has his own gift from God, one in this matter and one in that matter. In other words, he's saying this is true for me, but he's not putting it on anyone else. He's saying, I wish people, more people would be like me, but he's not pushing. He's saying each person needs to find what God has for them. And so for me, it's quite plain. Given what Paul has said in the first five verses, we can't separate celibacy from singleness. Uh, it's, it's a biblical thing. It's a Bible thing. But at the same time, Paul is not some kind of killjoy. You know, he's not some kind of person saying, I wish all of you would join with me in the pain that I'm, I, I've got this unrequited sexuality and I, I have to endure it and I wish you'd all join me, suffering for Jesus. He's not saying that. If you've read, I love the letters of Paul. If you read the letters of Paul, you'll see he's a man of absolute joy. He has rich relationships. His, his letters are exuberant and he's got a friend in every town. Paul is the most warm, friendly guy you would ever meet. He loves people. He loves the church. But his, the fact that he is single doesn't stop him from loving other people and loving the church and giving himself in service to God. He's not living his life like, oh, God, let this be over. No, he sees it as a gift. There's no more, more joyful than um, Paul when he writes his letters. And he says, he says um, you know, he's got no wife, but he talks often about how many spiritual children he has. And despite the fact that he's had real suffering in his life, he chooses, he says, I'd rather live another day for the church, for the sake of the church, than to be in Jesus' presence. I mean, that's the kind of guy Paul is. He's saying, it's good for me that I'm still, for you, that I'm still around for a while to help you than for me to go and be with Christ. Why do I say that? Philippians 1. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What, what should I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain here in my body. Man, this is a guy that loves people. He's not letting anything hold him back. 
So it's not like, Paul, this is a winter. My life is such a winter. It's barren. I'm not married. It's so barren. There's no fruit. And I'm waiting for the great spring when I'll be married. It's not like that. Exactly the opposite. I hope if you're single this morning, you're feeling a little bit encouraged. No one? Oh, that's not good. Can I point you to something else? You know, uh, Paul says this. He actually says, the single life is beautiful. I didn't know that, but he does. He uses the word kalon in Greek, which means beautiful. The single life is beautiful. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8. Now to the unmarried and to widows I say, it is good, it is kalon, it is beautiful to stay unmarried as I do. Why does Paul say that? Because he, can, he sees it's such a positive good in his life. The single life while you're waiting, anticipating new things, can be absolutely beautiful. Why? Because Jesus has changed everything. That's Paul's attitude. Jesus changed. All, all these things are passing away. The, uh, the, the world and everything is passing away. Remember um, uh, Clapton sang the beautiful song, No Tears in Heaven? Remember? No Tears in Heaven? Well, I want to say this to you. There's no sex in heaven either. No sex in heaven. We will recognize each other as male and female, but there's not going to be sex in heaven. There's going to be ecstatic worship in heaven that Helen pointed us to last week. That is a few, there's a foretaste of that in sexual relationship on earth, and it's even better than that in heaven as we worship God. That is what the Bible says. Get used to it. We're going to have ecstatic, nerve-jangling Worship in heaven, that just ever fiber of your being is just like exploding, like that, like orgasm. That's what, that's what the Bible says. And we make it so spiritual and so confusing for people. It's plain. That's why we need to get these things in our thinking a little bit straight. The world is passing away. And what Paul is saying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has radically changed everything and there's a completely new family from every tribe, every tongue, every people group being brought together, millions, the kingdom of God. And that changes everything. That means I can live for him in a radical way as a single person, undistracted. Because let's face it, people, those of you that are married, it's complicated, isn't it? Yes? And I, one of the things I want to say later is I think one of the duties of the church in community, is to show single people that marriage is incredibly hard but incredibly glorious. It's not just full of romance and full of wonderful feelings. It's incredibly hard. And we as married people have to help people in community that are wanting to be married and are still single to show through the demonstration and the sharing of our marriages how incredibly glorious marriage can be even at times when it is difficult. That's part of our duty as Christian people. And so Paul argues and says this gift of singleness means you can in an undistracted way give yourself to helping other people in the church and helping other people to find Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried person is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please God, but a married man is concerned with the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. How many times haven't you heard this phrase? 
Happy wife, happy life. You heard that? Come on now, it's all over. Well, it's truth in that, of course. And as a husband, you have to get it together. And that takes energy. And Paul is saying, I don't have that distraction, and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to go for it now with all that I have. So single people, I want to encourage you. It is a gift. Enjoy the gift. Don't, don't see it as something to be endured. It's a positive good in your life. Paul says more than that. He says it's a time of beauty in your life. It's a beautiful thing. Enjoy it. Give yourself for God's kingdom. Give yourself for, for other people. Enjoy it. Can I point you to this? The greatest Christian that ever lived, the most beautiful human being that ever lived, the most complete human that ever lived, Jesus Christ, never had sex. Our culture says this, if you can't have sex, you are less human than everybody else. I want to tell you, I count it dung, as Paul said. I count that attitude dung. That is absolute dung. It's rubbish. The most complete person on the face of the planet, Jesus, never had sex with anyone. He was completely human, completely fulfilled. Sex is temporary. It's a gift that is temporary. Enjoy it while you can. It's not an internal thing. No sex in heaven. No one's happy they came this morning. <laughs> Thirdly, singleness is not junior school. What I mean by that, sex is not junior, uh, singleness is not junior school. You know, I think it is good that we do argue for the the positive side of marriage, um, and I've already said that Paul says, if you're burning, get married. But unfortunately, culture, and I think even more unfortunately, even church culture, rather than Paul, rather than the Bible, argues that sexual fulfillment is absolutely essential for human happiness. And so Paul, he does two things. He tries to renounce this kind of super spiritual ascetic kind of thing on the one hand. But on the other hand, he doesn't give any ground to those people who say that life without marriage and without sex is incomplete. He doesn't. He stands in the middle and he holds the line. And he's, it's the, that's why I'm saying sex in marriage is not being promoted from junior school to high school. You get what I'm trying to say? You know, when, you know, when you're kind of not, you're still learning and you, you know, you're celibate and you're single and then you get promoted to high school. Now I can enjoy all these things. The Bible doesn't see it. It's not an accomplishment that makes you a better leader, <laughs> that makes you a person who's more wise, or a person that is more qualified for anything just because you're having sex. Why do we think like that? The world encourages us to, to think like that. Rather, despite every evidence to the contrary at the moment, it does not define what it means to be a human being. Jesus and Paul, both celibate, both single, both fulfilled, both doing what God had called them to do. And so it's, this, it's not the ultimate gift. It is a gift to be enjoyed. And this is the thing I find amazing about Paul. Paul can tell us in Ephesians 5 about the actual end of marriage and that it's this picture of Jesus and the church. I mean, he's got this amazing, amazing revelation of what marriage is and what sex within marriage is. And he points us to that on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, he says, I wish all Christians would live as I do, unmarried. Amazing man. 
What, what understanding of what God got? So for Paul, the Bible I'm putting to the New Testament, there's purpose there's, that is incredibly positive and beautiful. And singleness and celibacy is a Bible thing. And can I tell you, Jesus said that. <laughs> Even Jesus said that. Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, he's talking to his friends, he's saying, you know, in, the, in that culture there were eunuchs that served in harems and um, so they couldn't uh, mess with the king's wives. And it says here, there are eunuchs, uh, Jesus speaking, there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs that have been made that way by others. And then, this is what Jesus says, then there are those that choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it. He says, some of you will choose to live a single life. And it's for the purpose of the kingdom. And then he says, the one who can accept this should accept it. Saying, if that's what God's called you to do, go for it. What a beautiful thing. That's my second point. Right? The others are very quick. Third thing, first, first thing, not all periods of your life are there to seek relationship. Second thing, try and see singleness as a gift. It really is a gift. It's positive. It's beautiful. It's a, God, it's a biblical thing. The third main point. As you get older, if you do want to be married, I want to suggest to you that you get more serious about thinking about that. Uh, if you're in your late 20s or early 30s and you take someone out, it's kind to them that you make sure that they understand that you are thinking about relationship in terms of marriage. One of the most painful situations that we've seen uh, as we've led church, this church for a long time is that one part of the, um, the relationship is just wanting to have fun. Uh, you know, I just want to have fun, someone to go out with. The other part of the relationship, the other person is wanting deeper relationship. It's incredibly painful when you see that worked out. And so I want to put it to you that you need to act your age. And if you are in your late 20s and you're a young man, don't ask someone out just for, like, I want to have fun with you. We're just going to go, you know, let's go to London. Let's go and see some shows. Let's kind of do a deal. You know, it'll be entertaining. We'll have fun. But I'm not really looking for anything else. Well, consider the other person. Consider the other person. What does it mean for them? Don't mess with people's emotions. Um, I think one of the things that I'm sad about is our culture encourages us to remain... Peter Pan's as long as we can. And somehow that's seen as a really positive thing. Look as young as you can for as long as you can. Behave as young as you can for as long as you can. I'm going like, what? Really? Do we want, do we want children in the bodies of adults? No we, no, we don't. We want men. We want women that are mature, that can help others, that are not eternal children themselves. Surely. So the older you get, please think about what you're doing and consider the other person. Fourthly, and now this is a hard one, because the Bible everywhere assumes that if you are a Christian, you would want to marry another Christian. So I want to encourage you, don't get involved emotionally in a deep level with someone who's not a believer. And so I want to say this as carefully as I can because I've had this conversation with my boys. What about when you meet someone who's more compatible and is not a Christian as to just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean they're compatible for you either, all right? I'm not saying that. 
And so this is incredible tension that we have to live in. We're trying to find a life partner. We meet someone. We get on with in every way. They're not a Christian. What do we do? Well, I think it's very, very important to try and understand the why of what we do. And I want to encourage you, if you are a parent, don't, don't say this to your children. Don't date a non-Christian. It's not helpful. It's, it's just putting legalism on them. Do you think it's helping them? All they're going to do is get frustrated with you. What you need to explain, we need to explain why we think that is a good idea. Don't put it on a, as a law, you know? I mean, I've had this conversation many times with my boys. One of the, th- not yes, I can say this. One, one of the things that they find frustrating is that in the church, things are so tight that if you're involved in music or, or art, you are so, you're automatically like immoral. You're, you're like, you're automatically doing drugs and sleeping around. Why is the church like that? Come on. It's the life of the Spirit that we need to be showing people, pointing people towards. And we put rules on people all the time. And my friends, I want to say this to you. If you say that to your your kids, you're putting a rule on them, it's going to crush them. They have to find their way. And the way they find their way is from the inside out. By loving Jesus. You helping them to find Jesus in their lives, to love Jesus with all of their hearts. And as they do that, they will make the right choices. So, so I say, why do I say it's not positive to date someone or God who's a non-believer? Because, you know, God's more concerned that you marry in your faith than he is than you marry in your race. Do you know that? I love multicultural marriages. Beautiful. Oh, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of every single person from every tribe. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going on too long. I'm nearly finished. Being brought together, it's a beautiful picture of the church. God is more concerned you marry in your faith than you do uh, in your race. And why do I say that? Because it's the most basic thing in your life that motivates you. If the other person doesn't even understand your faith, why you do what you do, why you want to... Why you want to actually value church community. Why you want to worship. Why you want to spend time with other Christians. If they don't even understand that basic thing, that basic motivation, everything else in your life is going to be opaque to them. It's going to be like, I don't quite get that. Why do you do this? Now, having said that, I do know of relationships where people have married and one partner is not a Christian and they have a very, very successful marriage. I do know of relationships like that. This is the deal, though. They are incredibly, incredibly rare. (laughs) And if I think of my journey as a church pastor over 30 years, the amount of relationships that I've seen implode when one partner is not a believer and the other partner is. Many, many, many more. I would would say 95% of those relationships don't work. And I implode. And we always think we're going to be the 5%, don't we? We like to think we can make this work. We're different from everybody else. <laughs> what we've seen more and more over the course of our lives is we always get pulled down to the lowest common denominator. You never get inspired to the highest. So let me pick an example. Husband is not a believer. Wife is. Gets married. Over a period of time, we just see this. 
Wives, less and less in the church community, less and less with God's people, more and more away from God's people. Why? Because the husband really sets the tone. And over a period of time, she just gets absolutely worn down. And in the end, she says, well, what do I choose? That's why the Bible says, better you marry someone who's a believer. Help your kids to see that. Don't, don't put law on them. Help them to see that for themselves. Fifth, I'm nearly done. Feel attraction in the, there's another uh, difficult one, but feel attraction in the most comprehensive way. What do I mean by that? Remember, Paul's already said, if you're burning, get married. <laughs> Don't wait. But this is a, this is a beautiful thing. I, I want to talk, talk about Galatians 5.22 because part of being attracted to someone is also recognizing God in them. Isn't that true? Galatians 5.22 says, um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there's no law. And part of choosing a marriage partner is that you say, I recognize something of that in you. And I want, uh, that's what I want for my relationship. I, I want that kind of Holy Spirit thing that's in you. I, I want that in, to, to be part of my, my life going forward. And so uh, it's like you see the future that God has for the person and you're saying, I like your future and I want something of your future in my life. That's what I'm talking about, comprehensive attraction. It's not just a physical thing. That's why I'm saying to you, I would advise that right at the top of your list, if you're waiting for someone, is friendship. It's right at the top of your list. Right there, because you, you, you want to share in something of what that person is going to become, and you can see something of what that person is going to become because of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Are you with me? And there's a beautiful thing. C.S. Lewis says this. He uses this phrase. He, 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 calls, he says there's a thread in our lives which he calls mythos. Mythos. My Greek friends and I, we have drunk some bottles of mythos on the beach, Mythos is a very nice German, um, uh, Greek beer, and I didn't realize this. What mythos means, it means tail. It means thread. And so C.S. Lewis has this beautiful thing. He says, there's a thread in your life. It's a mythos. It's your tail of your life. And actually, every person that shares in the same things that you do, the books that you like to read, or the movies like you like to see, or the things that you value, or that's part of the thread of your life. And real, what God wants for us is that we have someone in our lives that so shares the tale of our life, the thread of our life, that they become part of the thread, the mythos, the tale of your life. That's how you want to choose someone. That's why you take time to get to know someone. That's why you withhold yourself sexually because when you start sleeping with someone, there's immediately there's like a connection and you can't see straight because your hormones are raging and the romance is there and you end up choosing the wrong person because you slept with them and they're not really part of the thread of your life. Do you get it? That's why God says don't. Don't withhold. Remember Song of Solomon? Withhold yourself until the right time. Because when you start sleeping with someone and they're not really part of the thread of your life, the future of your life, you are in deep trouble. Don't go there. It's God's kindness to us that he says these things because he's a good father to us. Find someone that is going to be part of the mythos, the thread, as much as you can. 
we promised each other, and we probably didn't even know what we were saying. Part of our marriage vows were we promised each other that we would help each other become the person that God wanted us to be. And we've done that, I think, probably not well many times. We fought a lot. We've had great times. It's all helping each other. Helen's helped me to become more of the person that God wants me to be. And I hope I've done the same for her. That's messy. It's beautiful. But it's not a science. I know that. All right. Okay, so I want to say, how do you know? How, how do you know that you're finding someone who's going to be part of the tale of your life? Well, have you ever solved a few sharp conflicts together? Have you ever come through some real, real arguments? <laughs> have you ever gone through a cycle of repenting and forgiving each other? Yeah? Because I know this, and we've certainly found this in our, in our relationship, that the kind of love that is going to last a lifetime, it's not about emotion, man. It's about glad, non-begrudging, sacrificial service to the other person, even in, in, during times of in, inevitable seasons in your life where your emotions are dry, you're feeling flat, you're feeling cold, you don't feel anything. That's biblical marriage. That's what it is. So, as you think of these things, have you repented and forgiven and have you made changes in your life to, for the other person? <laughs> you know, I don't want to do this I don't want to change, but I can see I need to change for your sake. We've had a couple of moments like that in our lives where I've had to say, I've got to change, man, because if I don't change, this is the end. It's not going to work. You have to have those moments. And so I want to put it to you, last thing that I'm going to say, and then we're landing. There's a blindness that comes upon you when you sleep with someone too soon. Because the reality is when you sleep with someone, it activates deep, deep passion in your life for the other person before you have time to take a really good look at who they are. Yeah. Take a really good look at who the other person is. And the Bible says the best way to do that is to keep yourself back until you're married and then you sleep with them. Put the friendship around the top. And then last thing I want to say. Don't become a false spouse. Don't become a foul spouse. You know, faux spouse, the French word faux. What does that mean? It means not genuine. It means fake. It means that you are in a relationship where the other person won't commit to you. Don't become a false spouse. It's a great pain in my life to see this as well over many years leading a church. Some pe people get too serious too quickly and they try and push it too fast. Other couples in which one member of the relationship has this deep reluctance to take the relationship forward. And so you see a relationship going on for years and years and years. There is no sign of deepening progress towards marriage. And that was generally because the one person in the relationship has found a level of relationship which is short of marriage, but where they feel happy. And they don't want to commit to anything else. And they don't feel they need to go to this final stage of commitments. But I want to say to you, don't get yourself in that position. Get out of that kind of relationship if it's not what you have. It's not what you want for your life if you really do want to be married. And last thing, I've said this already. Commit to community. Uh, I think we make too many decisions unilaterally in our lives. 
Too many decisions that are just me and my point of view. That's why community is so beautiful. That's why church is so beautiful. Because there are people in community that have much more wisdom that can help you in your life as you make choices. And so I want to put it to you even more strongly that I think Christian marriage should be communal. What do I mean by that? I mean that we should, as Christians, find ways of sharing our marriages with uh, those that are still single or hoping to be married to show how glorious marriage is, how hard marriage is, how wonderful it is, how satisfying it is, but that we need to work at it and that we can share our wisdom over years with people that still would like to be married. So singleness might be a waiting season, but it doesn't need to be wasted. It can be beautiful. It can be positive. So here are the takeaways. Singleness. Some seasons better to be single, not be married. Don't know what season you're in. Secondly, singleness is a gift. It's a Bible thing. It's a positive thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a junior school thing that you get promoted from, you know. Don't let anyone put that on you. Enjoy your life, whatever stage you're in. As you get older, if you do want to be married, get more serious about it. Act your age. Be kind to those that might see things differently from you. Um, find attraction in the right way. Find the person, try and find the person that's going to be part of the tale of your life, the mythos of your life, and make your future with them. Take it slowly, but don't be someone who can't commit. Eh? Pull the trigger. At the end, you've got to pull the trigger. You've got to commit. You've got to say, I'm going for it. And lastly, enjoy and live in and love community. Community is good for us. It helps us. It will help your marriage that you surround yourself with other people who are in healthy marriages, who love marriage, and are doing their best, muddling their way through and getting on with it. Amen? I hope you are happy that you came. I hope that you're encouraged. And let's pray. We're going to drink some coffee together, some tea together. Sorry? Oh, yes, and the lunch as well. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you. For every stage of our lives, thank you for the privilege of family, the privilege of community, the privilege of knowing each other. And thank you within that we find friendship. I want to pray for every single person in this church, this community, that they would find other people that can be part of the mythos of their life. That they can be part of the tale, part of the beautiful things that we can share together. And within that, I pray that some, those that want to be married, they would find that person that would be part of that mythos, part of that tale, part of that journey. Thank you, that's what you have for us. And for those, Lord, that are like Paul, who say, I wish all people were like me, because I've got this opportunity to give myself in an undistracted way for the kingdom. I will pray your blessing on them as well, every single person, whatever our choices, however we've decided to live. And Lord, I want to pray for those that are in the period of waiting, that feel frustration, feel impatience. Help them to wait well. Help us to, wait, help us to help them to wait well, that they might please you in every area of their lives. And God, we pray, help us to be gracious to each other, kind to each other. Help us really to lift up each other's arms as we seek to live for you. In Jesus' name. Now God bless you, God keep you, God make his face to shine upon you, God give you peace, have a great day, please stay for lunch, stay for coffee, meet someone you don't know, and we hope to see you again next week, right? See you soon.